0: It makes your day-to-day easier and gives you the freedom to focus on what really matters, your future.
1: Grow your business without the grind in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started.
0: The question that's often asked in kind of bullshit delegation exercises of, you know, am I the only person that can do this? Mm -hmm. It's still a good question. I just like to frame it, you know, in a different, broader context, which is like, yeah, it, Is there anyone else that could do this even close to the level that I could do it at? Mm. And if the answer is yes, it shouldn't be me.
1: And more importantly, do I love to do this? Exactly. Because me being better at something and me energizing that thing are two completely different things. A hundred percent. Or I'd be a professional cellist.
0: Hey, everybody. Welcome to the show. This is Brave New Work, a podcast about reinventing our organizations and the search for a more adaptive and human way of working. I'm Aaron Dignan, and I'm joined by my co-host, Rodney Evans. Hello, hello. On today's very special episode, we are going to talk about Brave New Work, an orientation to a different way of working and changing. But before we lay that foundation, we should get present with our check-in.
1: We should, because what a day we've had. My goodness. (laughs) It's felt like a bit of a sprint already, and it's only noon. So our check-in question for today that gets us present, that gets us connected, that gets us sharing airtime, that gets us starting on time, though (laughs) not on this podcast. Uh, When you have a big life decision to make, what is your process like?
0: So if it's a human decision, like who to marry or who to be friends with or things like that, I'm definitely in the blink camp. How does it feel? What is my intuition telling me about that in the moment? But when it comes to literally everything else, I start with, what does good look like? What are my principles for success? What would the values or the principles be that define what I'm trying to do? So am I trying to optimize for how much I spend? Am I trying to optimize for performance? Am I trying to have a a quick solution or am I willing to take my time? And once I have that set of criteria, then I look at the available options and do my research and I see, does anything meet all my criteria? Mm. And if something does, boom, that's it. And that alone can take, you know, days. And then if if nothing in the market meets my criteria, then I choose which one I'm willing to sacrifice. And then mm. I look again. So do you it's make basically an even overstatement? Kind of, yeah. It's like a multifaceted even overstatement. But I find that nine times out of ten, if I either go with my initial group or remove one, I can get what I need.
1: And then do you have no regrets?
0: Well, yeah, then I I basically feel really happy with my stuff and i often am annoying because i will then try to sell other people on my stuff
1: I, yeah i'm familiar as with you're that well aware <laughs> i like my stuff like you need to like it too yeah <laughs> i like my stuff and i like you so now you need to like my stuff that's ideally. how that's the aaron dignan friendship equation
0: that would be nice it doesn't yeah. it doesn't have to be that way but i'm going to nudge in that direction I love it. What about
1: you? I was reflecting on this because I've made some pretty big life decisions recently. And what I've realized is that I have a process that's evolved in my adulthood that I think might be a little bit unique, Mm. which is that when I have an idea about something like getting a dog or buying a lake house or moving a family member or something like that, I'll do a batch of initial research to sort of like map the territory similar Mm -hmm. to you. But I don't usually get into a lot of depth. I'm definitely the person who like wants to go right to the first date. Like we're not swiping (laughs) for a week. Like there's, it's just like, let's figure this out. And then if it's a big decision and the first bunch of possibilities that I explore don't feel right, I am a person who's like, the universe will tell me Mm. when it is time to pull the trigger on this
2: just I should let use it a better marinate. expression
1: the universe will tell me when the thing uh, it has appeared and then and it always does and then when that thing appears i'm like this is for me and i am for this and there is no <laughs> other option that i ever need to consider again in my life right and i have no urgency about it like this right. is the thing that drives my mom really bonkers about me is that i'll see something or want something or find something and she'll be like, well, what if someone else takes it? And I'm mm. like, no, the universe already decided that's for me. It'll be there.
2: <laughs> like the lake
1: house will be there. Rosie will be there. This room, it'll be there. So I've realized recently that it's a, it's a mapping, then it's a marinating, and then it's a manifesting, and then it is total certainty.
0: Yeah. And it's very zen, I think, to just be okay with what happens will happen. And the way it unfolds is the way it is meant to unfold. Yeah. So I like that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I was do.
1: also, as a random aside, I was thinking about that in terms of working with the ready and how for like years I was like, I don't know, like I'm doing this and I'm doing other stuff and I like you guys and I also like other stuff. And then there was just a moment where I was like, okay, now, now it's time. <laughs> and then I, and then never since then have I thought like, Oh, that I should have thought differently about that. It's just right. like when it's time, it's time.
0: And when it clicks, it clicks.
1: When it clicks, it clicks. That was fun.
0: Which is a pretty good preamble for today's conversation. So we're talking about orientation to this work. We realize we've done 50, 60 episodes and we've had thousands of conversations over the years. And we haven't really set down a foundational explanation of what it is, why it is, what we're all about. Most of the conversations we're having these days are with folks that have read Brave New Work or have read an article we've written or have listened to this pod or studied with other people in our space. But for those that are truly coming in cold and and want some ways to get onboarded and get clear about what Brave New Work is all about, I wanted to start by asking you to answer a series of of orientation questions right so what is the work that we do when we're not recording this podcast why is it so hard to explain to our moms who should be working with us (laughs) and people like us and for what reasons let's let's map the territory
1: let's map it so what we do is organizational design with a future of work bent we'll talk about all of these things it's so hard to explain because it doesn't fit into a category that already exists. Right. It's still early enough in this industry. The, the theory, the philosophy practitioners have been around doing real amazing work for 70 years, but it has not <laughs> become like the zeitgeist, like strategy consulting in the 90s or like agile in the right. early 2000s, like Design it hasn't thinking. been branded and codified yeah. and been like, here's your certification. So it's hard to explain because people don't know exactly how to categorize it. Everyone should be working with us who has a job. I mean, I, I sort of joke, <laughs> but it's like, have you ever been to a cocktail party where by the end of the night someone didn't go like, man, I really wish you could talk to my boss.
2: A hundred percent. It's just like
1: if you work or you have a family or you are in a school, or you go to a church, or you are a part of any complex system with more than two other human beings, their They're life here. will be better. Yeah. And we're going to talk about all of the reasons. There are a lot of reasons that being adaptive in a world that is so complex as to be overwhelming and sometimes <sighs> just fully <laughs> paralyzing uh, is just a very helpful skill set.
0: Yeah. I agree. I think what's weird about relaying what we do and what we stand for is that everyone has the problem. So the problem is totally. work sucks. That's the <laughs> yeah. problem. And like you said, you go to a cocktail party, you talk to anyone in any team anywhere, and you're like, hey, what's what's hard about work? Everyone has an answer, right? Yeah. There's something about what's going on, whether it's burnout or overload or too much email or too many meetings or, you know, we don't have the right authority or we don't know how we make decisions or we don't know what our priorities are. There's something in the way of the individual and the team and the organization doing its best work. And and so we're all aligned on that. I think the problems are felt almost universally. But then there's this huge gap about what to do about it. Yes. Because all of our mental models about power and teams and leaders and structure and how the world should work are informed by an ideology that has been around for centuries, essentially, but has been really perfected at the turn of the 20th century that is built on a set of ideas that are treated as inevitable and platonically ideal that are just completely not. Yeah. And so when you say to someone like, yeah, work sucks, and the way we need to fix it is we need to upend most of the principles and practices that happen at work, there's just like this schism, this breaking point in the brain where it's like, n- no, we need, to, we need to predict and control everything. We need leaders and bosses. We need budgets. We need all these yeah. trappings of modern life. And so then there's a little bit of an impasse. And I think that to your point, there's no line item, right? right? It's it, it just doesn't compute.
1: Yeah, that's a very elegant way of saying that. And I used to say to a former client who led a very large organization, when he and I would talk about what this work is, and he would tell me his mental model for this work, I always said he had the bread for the sandwich. I was like, one slice of bread was the the plan. He had a strategy, he had a product strategy, he had a roadmap for that strategy, he had outcomes and metrics that he had signed up to achieve that he was excited about. Right. And then the other side of the sandwich was holding people accountable to it huh. and writing about it. And I was like, right, that that's not that's the why and the what. There's no how in Mm -hmm, this sandwich mm -hmm. and the how is all of the good stuff like all the meat and the lettuce and the vegetables and the mayonnaise is in the how yeah you just got bread bro and and to to his and other clients credit over the years for many of them and certainly for me when i came to this work that like unlocked something in my brain where tumblers fell into place and i was like oh my God, this is why nothing works. Like, right, right, This is why change management doesn't work. And this is why strategy consulting doesn't work. And this is why digital transformation doesn't work is because it's just bread. Yep. And, and that is a hard, it's a hard thing to dive into when everything that you've been taught and socialized to and read and educated for in your entire life from birth to your internship tells you it's not about the how
0: and and just to play out the the metaphor for a second it, you know bread is delicious
2: mm-hmm. right like bread is
0: bread is the part of the meal that you eat too much of before the meat comes right? <laughs> That's right and so and so i get it right it's very it is very enticing and very compelling to spend most of your time on those things and it feels like you are controlling the outcome in a way yeah but it's not gardening and it's not human systems work yeah, and and at the end of the day, if you want to have an outcome that you're that you're happy with, that you're proud of, and an experience that you're happy with and and enjoy, it's human systems work. It's socio-technical work. It is the the stuff that we don't like to do because it's hard. Yeah, because yeah. it takes time, because it takes focus, because it makes our brain hurt, and so often we liken this work that we do to personal training because. It's very exciting to buy the latest diet book Mm -hmm. and to sign up for the latest app and to track this and to track that and to weigh in every day and to be
1: like I'm going to weigh 115 pounds at the end of this.
0: That's my goal, right? That's all one wonderful stuff.
1: Yeah, but you know
0: what really makes the difference is at the gym at 6 a.m. broccoli instead of bacon. Like it, you know what I mean? It's the stuff that sucks. And that the, is a little hard.
1: The thing is, though, to me, it only sucks when you don't know how to do it. Correct. It's like you know, I'm in very good shape right now because we were home for 18 months, and I wasn't in. <laughs> that's where hotel you put rooms. your anxiety. Yeah, exactly. That's right. And I always thought that working on abs was just inherently painful right, and terrible. exhausting, and I hated it. I was just right. like, I don't want to do that. It's objectively terrible. You know when it's not terrible? When you have ab muscles. (laughs) It actually feels kind of great.
0: Exactly. It's
1: like, I can plank forever. I'll plank until you die. Right. But now, I'm not like, this is horrible anymore. Now I'm like, tuning into nuances that make it more compelling and more effective and more all of those things. And like, I was thinking, we were just in a meeting with our growth circle this morning, and I'm doing OS work for that circle. Having so many moves now around the instantiation and design of a team and being able to like really see through something that is complex and be like, here are the levers, which one should we pull? Yep. That is, it is such a good feeling. It's such a good feeling. It's a different kind of control. Yes,
0: absolutely. Because it is in some ways back to the flow concept of yeah. you know mastery and anxiety yeah. and thinking about yeah when you don't do sit-ups when you don't work out every day when you don't do intentional organization design the first meeting's rough yeah it just is you know <laughs> it doesn't but, feel good <laughs> but if you build that capacity and you build that understanding and you build that mastery then it's actually quite fun it's so fun to express your ability in an it area where is. you've actually grown and cultivated ability.
1: And the other thing that is so... Now I feel like I'm just pitching the case for everyone on earth to become an org designer. <laughs> but I feel like that's what happens with our clients. like They yeah. do ultimately just become org designers everyone in their needs own to be a places. Um, is like when you have a company and you have too many clients or you don't have enough customers or you have a product but it it's too early or the fit isn't right or the pricing isn't right or whatever... The old way of doing things invites you to try to control an environment that you can't. And mm-hmm. that is so stressful and exhausting. Yeah. And our way of doing this work, it's like, oh, if you're a tech company and you don't have enough users, let's look at your OS and mm-hmm. let's like dig in and see what you could be trying. Like That gives you such a level of agency in a world that is so uncooperative right. all the time. Right.
2: Focus where you can actually do something. Don't make
1: a thousand cold
2: calls. (laughs)
1: There's a better way, you know?
0: You know, speaking of those problems that you just outlined, let's set the stage for the kinds of problems that our clients and and organizations like them going into this work are sitting with when they come to it. So if you're listening and you're like, I don't know if this is for me, what are the kinds of problems that would signal that this is for you?
1: Yeah. I mean, the... One that I hear a lot from big companies is feeling like they're spinning their wheels. So Mm -hmm. I hear a lot of narrative of everybody's working really hard. It's not that people aren't (laughs) doing stuff. all 60-hour weeks. Yeah, we're just (laughs) grinding. But nothing is really happening. Like It doesn't feel like there's a lot of momentum. It doesn't feel like there's innovation. It doesn't feel like there's value creation. Where is all the effort going? Where is all that energy being seeped to? Because it's not showing up in the metrics or in customer satisfaction or in new products being launched or anywhere that matters.
0: Yeah. And I hear two sort of cousin tensions that that emerge around that. One is, which is a very common battle cry these days, lack of agility, lack of speed, lack of responsiveness. So that's more mm-hmm. of a market-focused flavor of the same feeling of like, we're just not getting enough out to the market we're not moving fast enough we're not shipping fast enough when people say they want agility they don't really mean they want to be like nimble jumping left and right they yeah. really mean they want to be moving faster towards the future and yeah. and that is something that they're feeling and then the other one is the more accusatory flavor which is there's a lack of accountability and ownership here. Yeah. So we've empowered everybody. Everybody knows the stakes and they just won't step up. Mm-hmm. Air quotes, step up. Mm-hmm. And that is, and again, it's still about somehow we're not doing either enough or the right stuff.
1: Hmm. Yeah. And we've talked about this aspect of this on the show a million times, but that, that sort of drumbeat is also so much about talent, mm-hmm. which I, I don't, I don't love having that conversation because when people just want to blame it on how all the people suck, (laughs) I'm like, that can't be true. Right? Right. Everybody here except you is not an idiot. So what's the deal with your system Mm -hmm. that is making everyone helpless and stupid? Because I agree with you that that is how they're behaving, but that's because that's the system that they live in. And I've been there. Yeah. So I love that. What are some of the other biggest problems you hear in early conversations?
0: I mean, just to rattle them off, I hear a lot about team effectiveness. So not just are we getting it done at an organizational level, but is the team healthy? Is the team functional? Is the team, is the unit of team something that we know how to intentionally do well at this Mm -hmm. company? And then are teams interacting with each other effectively? So are there good cross-team collaborations and experiments and agreements and things of that nature. All of the reasons for a lot of this tension tend to bubble up to the word bureaucracy, which we've talked a lot about in this show and in the book, where it's just the boogeyman that we all point to when things get too complicated and too checklisty and too committee driven. And yeah. the, you know, the paperwork multiplies and it feels like, oh yeah, maybe the reason we're not getting enough done is because we've put all these roadblocks in front of ourselves. Mm -hmm. And I do hear firms talk a lot about how that then leads to a feeling of fragility or brittleness or the idea that like we're going to get lapped by the market or we're going to fall apart or we're, you know, because we have things in our way, we've essentially tied our arms behind our back and we're running a three-legged race and it's, it feels insurmountable and like it's destined to, to end in a way that doesn't feel great. And in that situation,
1: I also just feel like specifically everyone who has had the lived experience of working in a system like that, understands that there is no slack in that system of course so in in addition to running a three-legged race with your arms tied behind your back like now there's a water feature
0: yeah it's that you a red need to line. cross yeah yeah you're not gonna make
1: it <laughs>
0: <laughs> well and, and and basically we need you at hundred percent all the time
1: forever and yeah. and
0: there's no there's never going to be a moment to catch your breath which of course leads to burnout yes and I think ultimately even as a leader or a founder or someone who is able to perhaps have the power to distance themselves a little bit from that effect. Over time, and I experienced this personally, over time, it adds up to a feeling of existential crisis.
1: Totally Of
0: like what you know, is this all there is? Like I climbed the ladder, I got to the top, I started a thing, I got it to I got it to grow. And now there's this feeling of emptiness, like uh, the way this thing works and the, what I have to do to make this thing work, feels yeah. either unsustainable or feels out of alignment with my values.
1: Yeah. And so I,
0: now, what the hell?
1: Yeah, and just feels like a waste of my life.
0: Yeah, <laughs> yeah, literally. Yeah, like uh, spend 10 like hours I'm a day treating people in a way that you're not proud of to get a thing that you're not even sure you're going to get. Yeah, it's it's subpar.
1: And just to click into that bit for a second, I'm going to say this out loud and I'm not even sure that I believe it yet, but I think I do. If there were one big mindset shift that I could just like incept into the brains of everyone who has a job on earth. It would be to orient to your enjoyment of the work itself Mm. and not to the trappings that you have been told to want.
2: (laughs) Because...
1: I just get into conversations that are infuriating where people are so hung up on the ladder, on the title, on the bureaucratic gold ring that they don't even like, they're not even tuned into the fact that like they hate every second of their (laughs) 60 hour week and everyone that they work with, including their toxic boss. Right, And they are striving to something that is not going to make it better at all. And like, Unfortunately, then you get to burnout and the existential crisis because you're going after and anchored to completely the wrong set of things.
0: Yes, I 100% agree with that. I think that the underlying drumbeat for the modern OS at work is that the ends justify the means.
1: Right. And oh so, man,
0: right? And so like Oof. if we get if we hit our goals, if we deliver our shareholder value, if we grow the amount we wanted to grow, then sorry that the year sucked for everybody, but we did it, everyone. We did and, it. And there's the big party and we all, Make you know, some, somebody on stage is sweating and screaming about how exciting everything is. And the people in the audience are just like,
1: <sighs> yeah,
0: another year of this. Another year. We did it. We hit. Oh, my God. We hit 10 percent return. We did it. Truly. It's not enough. And, and we're so, just yeah, to do
1: it again. But next year it'll be 12 <laughs> percent. And we'll also fire 5% of you.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and what I think was the biggest awakening for me in coming to this work as someone that that did play a little bit in that other game, not entirely, but I I was on the hamster wheel for sure, was when I realized that I could actually exceed my goals without focusing on them. Mm. And it was like, that was the big flip where it was like, wait a second. If I focus on the how and I focus on some of these principles that we talk about on the show like people positivity and complexity consciousness if I focus on those things then it just does grow. Yeah. <laughs> and and it just does happen and it just does you know achieve things that that I didn't even write down as goals. That that was truly surprising.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and I had the the opposite experience to you, which I told this story on a podcast that we never released, (laughs) so I'm going to tell it here. Oh yeah, Um, which is that my last year, I think it was my last year working at an investment bank that. I was so burnt and I was so exhausted from just managing bureaucracy as my entire job every day. I love to tell the story of an approval chain where the top person had already left and as a control on getting people hired, they just didn't change it in the system. So it was impossible. It was a 17 level approval chain and at the top was a ghost. But the actual story I wanted to tell is that like, that was my whole life was just every day and then getting right. screamed at because someone couldn't make the hire that they wanted to. My last performance review, rather than filling out the template that I was asked to complete, I just drew a picture of a cemetery and on each of the headstones wrote a project that I had invested a lot of time in that never went anywhere. <laughs> and I was just like, this is my year. Pay me. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, it's just, it was so infuriating that when I left there with truly no plan, I was just like, there has to be something else yeah. besides this. Yeah. So, so those are the problems we're trying to solve in the pantheon of the big organizations that are swimming in their own debt and being crushed under their own weight. Yep. What about those that are scaling? So, we have had a lot of conversations lately with organizations that are earlier in their journey, haven't created a whole pile of debt to navigate yet, and are trying to scale up without making the same mistakes that their dinosaur bureaucratic predecessors have made. So, yeah. what do you hear from those folks about what their beefs are? Well, I, yeah,
0: I mean, I think instead of starting in bureaucracy, they're starting in more of a chaos environment where everybody's doing everything lots of hats are being worn lots of projects are being thrown around and the desire ultimately aside from finding fit and finding you know a way to keep the business going and sustainable is about codification. It's about mm-hmm. structure and clarity and how do we and what is the blank way. And and so there's this very natural instinct of like, let's figure things out.
2: Mm-hmm. Let's
0: figure out the roles we need. Let's figure out the processes we need. Let's figure out the policies we need. And the, we determine need by what helps us repeat and scale this motion that is that is ideally leading to customers and then to revenue and then to profit. But, but there's also the shadow fear, which is I don't want to lose the magic. So there's something very magical about all of us around the kitchen table or around the you know the Zoom in the early days and we don't have a lot of that structure so we can be really flexible and really fluid and there's almost an allergy to like losing that and becoming a bureaucracy. yeah. And so there's a little bit of identity crisis going on all the time in those systems, sometimes between individuals that hold those different ideologies, sometimes within an individual who's like, I want to have my cake and eat it too. And I just don't know how to proceed.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I also, I think wrapped up in that often is also the ego of the founder, which is, I don't want to lose the magic by which we mean me, I'm the magic. I, I am the magic. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm the magic. And also, you know, an individual or a small founding team doesn't scale particularly well to be right. magically sprinkling on every single aspect of the <laughs> business. And that is really chaotic. And one of the things that we, Allie and I wrote an article on and that the training team had, you and I and Ali had really worked on this year was this idea that in a more chaotic environment, the kind of organiza- the kind of organizational debt that you create by refusing to instantiate any explicit agreements right. or a minimum viable structure or role clarity or decision making authority outside of the founder is that you get a real Influence culture, yeah. You get exactly. people who know that the only way to get what they want is to go sidebar with Aaron, and that whatever that decision is in the moment isn't precedent. Yep. And they can just ask for something else on Tuesday. Yep. And that that just it doesn't scale well.
0: Yeah. No kidding. And my reaction now on the other side of the adventure is like, Ugh, I don't want a lot of sidebars.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's a that's a good signal if you're a startup or or not even a mid sized CEO and and everything is coming to you and it's not coming to you in public, you have more chaos than you should on yeah. your hands.
0: Yeah. And so I think the the net of it is that both scales, the the startup and the end up, are are stuck in a battle with either trying to avoid bureaucracy but mm. also avoid chaos or dismantle bureaucracy but not return to chaos yeah. and and so that <laughs> totally. yeah it feels yeah it feels like a trap and we often have spoken on the show and and in other places about how there is a third way and and the third way is about approaching this work differently
1: yeah and removing as many constraints as you can stand from the bureaucracy and instantiating only the constraints that you absolutely need in the chaos.
0: Yeah, exactly. So, for someone that is aligned with these problems, feeling them resonating with them, what might their ambitions be? So, what have we heard early early adventure leaders, founders, managers, uh, folks that are coming to us talking about when they talk about what they what they hope will happen?
1: We hear different personal ambitions from different leaders that we ultimately partner with. And in a second, we're gonna talk about the ways in which those ambitions then are overcome by the way that we're actually working and become very challenging, but we won't do that yet. (laughs) I hear a lot from leaders, we want the ability to respond. So we, as a team, we're too slow. And when something happens, when there's an opportunity or when there's a crisis, we need. I want us to be the kind of team that can swarm it and that can immediate do something action. about it. And immediate yep. action. We have no no ability to do that. So that's one that I hear a lot. I do hear a lot about meaning, and I have conversations all the time with leaders at every level of organizations who are like, "What would it mean to fall in love with my job? What would it mm-hmm. mean to enjoy work? What you know? What would it mean to not dread even an hour of the mm-hmm. week?" Yep. and is that even possible? So like I hear I hear those versions. What about you?
0: Plus one to those. I also feel like there is an emerging set of desires and ambitions that are, I think originated in in more of an HR people and culture context. but ideas like empowerment and how do we actually get you know mm-hmm. push more decisions and more authority to the edge. Ideas like inclusion and diversity and equity and the things we've talked about in other episodes of this show, wanting to actually make that real inside the system and the way it works. Psych safety, which, you know, we've learned from a lot of team effectiveness research is kind of the core ingredient, right? If people don't trust each other and feel they can take risks at work, you're not going to get any of that other nice stuff that you want. So, So how do you drive that? And then just generally, I, I still hear a lot of talk about innovation, experimentation, trying new things in in all contexts, really, small, medium, and large, mm-hmm. where there is a desire to just be able to do the new in a way that feels like it's keeping pace with the market. So that is, you know, I think when people will imagine in their mind's eye, what does it look like? you know it is it's a set of speedboats and yeah. they're and they're moving around and they're and they're tagging opportunities and they're claiming new islands for the enterprise and and they are you know noticing and sensing what's going on and reacting in real time it is a very like you said it's a very swarmy response
1: yeah the irony is that we do hear that and what i hear in some ways is a desire for what you get through the democratization yes, of an yes. organization. But then, which which looks more like more people using independent agency and more people right. thinking about the problems. And more, you know, I hear all the time, like, I have all these smart and talented people and I pay them so much money and they just ask me what to do. <laughs> yep. And, and so we hear that as the problem statement. And then we ask people to start ceding territory that they had previously held as leaders. Right. And inviting proposals and declaring decision rights and pushing as much authority as they can as far away from them as they can stand it. Right. And then we get into some choppy waters.
0: Well, yeah, because you say, you know, I want speedboats. And I say, cool, let's go to the boat store. And you're like, whoa, whoa, whoa.
1: <laughs> I had a yacht.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like the yacht's fine. We just need people to paddle harder.
1: Yes, and And yes. so,
0: yeah, so there is a little bit of a, you're right. There's a disconnect, again, about the how, right? The we how. want the bread. We want these outcomes. We want these capacities in the system. But then how do we get them?
1: so unpleasant
0: <laughs>
1: so unpleasant for people you know you know why because it's so scary yeah because it's so scary because the person who has been at the helm of a cruise ship for 20 to 40 years right is not going to be super comfortable standing on the beach watching a bunch of speedboats which is effectively right. what we're asking them to do Right, right, And they're still going to be held accountable in all likelihood, even if it's mm-hmm. a CEO, like they yeah. still have board members and shareholders and whatever. Everyone at some level who is a power holder and is going to be asked to cede that power in order to have an empowered organization is taking a personal risk.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Now,
1: it's the right risk to take because chances are the way that you're doing it now isn't going to work right? For, or it's not going to work right. forever. It's not working as well as you want it to be, which is why we're even in this conversation to begin with. But we cannot overlook the fact that it feels pretty terrifying Absolutely. to be like, happen in a speedboat, uh, get in, loser and it's
0: much it's much easier i think to explain away an inevitable failure by saying i did all the right things right it's the it's 100%. the nobody ever gets fired for hiring ibm thing like yeah we brought in accenture we did the checklist, we did we did the playbook that everybody's always done. And you know what? It didn't work, but that's because the people didn't try hard enough.
2: Yeah. Not because
0: I did anything wrong, because I did the playbook that we all learned at Harvard Business School. So I think it, it is true that it's that you are at equal risk, in fact, probably at more risk in the yeah. current system. But it is also true that you might not be at as much personal risk because you're you're sort of under the protection of the current operating system.
1: Right. Right, absolutely.
0: The grace and favor of the king.
1: And, you know, we've had a lot of conversations in the last year internally about power structures and power literacy and power dynamics. Yeah. And I would say in my own education, which was sorely lacking around some of those (laughs) topics, what I have realized is like how much there is there. And if you are not someone who is power literate not just about reputational power, uh, not just about the various types of power that exist in a system, and maybe you can talk more about what they are, because I know you know them off the top of your head, but also about power related to carrying specific identities, et etc. Like if you're not willing to understand that whole landscape, at least with a 101 level of fidelity, you're going to suck at this.
2: Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like
1: you cannot play this game and also act like a king.
0: That's right. That's right. And I think just the acknowledgement that there are different forms of power and that they play a role in the different layers or or lenses on the organization is a big part of the awakening, right? Because there is yeah. a formal structure and there is an informal structure to your organization. And so just acknowledging that, right? There's the way things are supposed to get done and the way they actually get mm-hmm. done. And then there might even be a value creation structure, a way that we organize to actually ship things and make things and innovate that doesn't match either of those other two systems. Mm -hmm. So there's a kind of a power slash structural story in the organization as a a network. And then when you look at individuals, as you were saying, there are all these different kinds of power that we can hold. And often as a leader, we hold all of them. them. And so we don't recognize that they are different, that they can be distributed differently. But, you know, positional or legitimate power, right? The power of the role. I am the president of the company. I am the CEO. I am the primary shareholder, what have you. That's a power where the position itself confers a set of authority, which would be very different from a reputational power or an expert power, where mm-hmm. it's just like, you know what? People just trust Rodney on that issue. Like, mm-hmm. they just want to go and get her insight on that thing. And so that is, you know, that's different. And there and there are so many different flavors of this coercive power expert power informational power connection power that that if we don't even talk about them we don't know how to design for them or design around them and then we're kind of stuck and and I think giving up the control or giving up the the concentration of all those forms of power in one individual is super scary because mm-hmm. we don't know what we're getting but if we start to talk about what's the trade yeah then then we unlock a lot And that's always why I go back to the roundabout example when it comes time to talk about power.
1: Mm -hmm. Do you want to talk about the roundabout example in case there's anyone listening to this podcast that has not (laughs) heard this spiel?
0: Yeah. So the way I talk about it in the shortest possible terms is that there are two different operating systems and two different forms of power at work in the intersection with a light, like the signal controlled intersection versus the roundabout. And in the light, basically, it's a kind of coercive power, I tell you what to do, it's green, it's red, etc. And in the roundabout, it is more like the power of design, like you design the roundabout, but then no one's running it, no one's, no one's at the helm of that thing being like, all right, you go, you stop, etc. It just kind of works. And so when we talk about organization design and setting the table and building the chessboard, so to speak, of your organization, I often refer back to that and say, look, who has more power? the designer of and and operator of the stoplight, or the designer of the roundabout. And when you really play it out in your head, it's like, well, what is power? Well, power is getting things to do what you want. And if you look at the statistics and the data, the roundabout just does a better job at getting the designer what he or she wants. It's, It's safer, it's higher throughput, it's cheaper to build and maintain, it's better when the power goes out. And so they have more power, but they don't have to be there. And, and the joke I love to make is they get what they want, but they get to sleep in.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And and that is what I've always wanted. I, I've wanted to like bring the purposes and the impact that that I wanted to bring to the world, but not have to be 80 hours a week on the case
2: Yeah, and
0: not have to be the linchpin of the entire system, because that limits my ability to do things in the world. It limits my ability to grow that thing, it limits my ability to start other things, it limits my ability to see my family. And so, so yeah, so who has more power? I think that it's a trade of one kind of power for another kind of power, not the giving up of power.
1: Yeah. It is and, and it feels, it feels different. And one (laughs) traditional OS stoplight power is very egoic and it's very competitive. And it is intoxicating because it's like you go when I tell you to go. And unless and until I tell you to go, you just sit there and don't worry too much about it. Yep. And if there's no car coming for 50 miles and it's a pitch black night, don't worry about it.
2: <laughs> Just sit
1: there. Just sit there. Sit. And you know what? For a lot of people in this world who want to climb a ladder and want a lot of external trappings, it feels great. Mm-hmm. And also, it has so many failings. Yeah, One of which is that you have a bunch of people who are not paying very close attention And in a roundabout, you know, one of the things that we like to tap into in groups is the feeling of driving in a roundabout, which most people don't particularly enjoy. Right. And it's because we're not used to it. And having the level of agency that we have to keep ourselves and one another safe while we follow a couple of simple rules feels pretty scary until we get the hang of it. Yeah. And so yeah. it's very easy to go through one roundabout one time and be like, let's never do that again. Let's mm-hmm. go back to you telling me when it's my turn. But ultimately, over time, that's the shift that we're trying to get to. And so leaders and anyone going on this journey have to understand both sides of that equation. They're not going to understand it for real real until they're in it, yes. but at least understand that that's what's coming. That yeah. the day that you stop directing traffic in whatever place and at whatever level of risk you can do that is going to feel like a loss that you have to grieve. And the people who now have to drive around the fountain without crashing are not going to be great at it
2: for a while.
1: <laughs> and they're also not going to love it naturally, immediately.
0: Right. Back to the original part of the conversation about building mastery and capacity before enjoyment comes from doing the work yeah, in we don't all have way. sit-ups
1: on the first day, you know?
0: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I, I, you know, for me, and this may not be true for all of our listeners, it probably isn't, but for me, I took a lot of solace in the part of my research that led me to non human systems
2: Mm. because
0: I kept going back to like, what does good look like? What does it look like when this, when you're highly adaptive and highly responsive and what's possible, right? And, and it is in looking at ants and neurons and immune systems and mushrooms and mycelium where I was like, whoa. Yeah, These things are without any central cognition, acting like one big brain and doing incredible things in the world, right? They're accomplishing their goals without anybody driving and then finding parallels in things like the internet and saying, whoa, yes. the internet has no CEO. And I read in a passage in one of my favorite books on the shelf here. Someone asked, it was like a president of a company. They asked one of their VPs for an introduction to the CEO of the internet. Because they wanted to get to the bottom of what the plan was and what the roadmap <gasps> Who was. made that.
1: Yeah, isn't that
0: great? That's so and, good. And it's such a that is such a silly question now, but it's such the same kind of thinking that goes into this way of working and and challenge where people are like, you know what, that's all well and good, but who's the CEO of the internet? Yeah, and it's like it doesn't need the a CEO. Doesn't have one, right? Because the way it was designed allows it to emerge, and it is you know basically the most powerful technology of our age without anybody driving. Yeah, And so it's not without standards. It's not without guidelines. It's not without rules and structures. It has all of that. It just doesn't have a hero at the center who's like setting the plan for the internet.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And at a much more localized level, both in my time at McChrystal group with the team that I led there and certainly in my time at the ready Shifting from things being about effectively about me and what I can do and what, you know, what my idea was and the ways in which I have more merit or more value or more whatever than others to being so delighted by being surprised every day at the capacity Mm -hmm. and brilliance of other people is the greatest joy of my working life. And so it takes some time. You have to break your, you know, there's a little ego death. That happens there, if we're being honest about (laughs) it. But there is no better feeling than having a team that you have assembled and instantiated and advocated for and scoped and helped to become its own little natural system that like sprouts a flower or a mushroom that no one has ever seen before. And you're just like, oh my God, I love having my mind blown by my colleagues every day. Mm -hmm. And I will take that over an ego bath any day of the week.
0: Absolutely. And I think I still take plenty of ego satisfaction from being like, I put a few of the ingredients in place yes. to make this happen, right? Yes, and that, of course. that's enough for me. Yeah. And I want to make it clear to anyone listening, it, it is not as if I don't think, and I'm sure this is true for you as well, although tell me if it's not, but it's not as if I think there's nothing that I'm great at or there's of nothing that I'm not. the best at in the company. Of course there are things where I think I'm good at it or I'm great at it. Yeah. But it's the difference between that being a role, a project, an opportunity, a moment where I'm a player in the system Versus the linchpin holding it all together.
1: Also, at the core of what you just said, it's that you're not the best at everything. Right. Which is what traditional leadership presupposes. Yes. That you are smarter at every aspect of a complex organization than anyone else who got there later or makes less money or you manage in some capacity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that creates an untenable environment for everybody when the right. expectation is that I have to be better at sales and finance and operations and consulting and coaching and leadership than anybody else that I work with. <laughs> that's bananas! Like that is just a you know talk about a three-legged race. Let's yeah, not.
0: Espe- especially because you're not, and I'm of
1: course. not, and no one is, and no just one let is. it go,
0: right? Yeah, and then and then what's really I think. Exciting when you get to the other side of that egoic wrestling match is just to dial into like what do I really love to do?
2: Yeah, what am I really
0: good at? Uh, And and the question that the question that's often asked in kind of bullshit delegation exercises of you know am I the only person that can do this? Mm
2: -hmm.
0: It's still a good question. I just like to frame it you know in a different broader context, which is like yeah, it is there anyone else that could do this even close to the level that I could do it at? Mm. And if the answer is yes. It shouldn't be me.
1: And more importantly, do I love to do this? Exactly. Because me being better at something and me energizing that thing are yeah, two yeah. completely different things. A hundred percent. Or I'd be a professional cellist.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. No, I mean, that there are so many examples of things that you can be great at, but that don't bring you joy. And as a result, you suck the life out of them when you do them. Yeah. So I would much rather have someone who is a humble learner, who is aggressively excited about something in the business, doing it than me doing it where I'm slightly better than them, but I kind of hate it.
1: Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely.
0: So to, to land the plane a little bit here, why don't we talk about what a typical transformation looks like? So when we do engage or when, you know, a leader or a founder or a a team decides to take on this work, what are the sorts of things that happen?
1: Yeah. The first thing I want to say is if you're trying to get smart on this quickly so you can do it or convince someone or because you've talked to us and you don't understand what we're saying, try to forget your associations with the word transformation. Mm -hmm. Because most people immediately anchor to bread. They're like... What tell me what the starting point is. Tell me what the outcome is and tell me what the plan is. And I'm like, we're all we're going to do is meet. <laughs> we're just going to do, <laughs> we're going to start with pickles. So, uh, so that's one thing that scares people off is they go like, well, things are pretty good. I don't know that we need to transform. And I'm like, This is a different kind of transformation because you are transforming the how of things that you already do and will continue to do. And what that usually starts with is things like meetings. So we've talked a million times about meetings on this podcast. But one of the reasons I like to start with meetings is because that's where people come together. Mm
2: -hmm. It's where they
1: should be doing work, but they're probably not. (laughs) And it's where there's just a ton of low-hanging fruit. And so often instantiating a couple of new meeting types and a real disciplined operating rhythm at the team level is a starting point because that creates a container for changing other parts of the operating system. Exactly. And then from there, I usually, because it is such a accompaniment to meetings, we usually talk tooling. So what tools are we using to run the meetings like Kanban boards and shared workspaces? What are we using to do work asynchronously? Because part of what, you know, sours and spoils our meetings is that we try to do everything in them and then nothing gets done in between. So Uh meetings and the accompanying tooling are, to me, the most foundational starting points. And in some cases, it doesn't take much to dial those in. And in, in most cases, it's a big shift to get those two pieces humming so that we can start to work on other things.
0: Yeah, yeah. No, I think that's right. It, it And what you're touching on there are the kinds of things that create the capacity for change. Uh, I'm always on stage talking about change how we change because yeah. there's, there's an idea that we're trying to get somewhere different in the meat, in the how. And you can't do that if the how you use is the same old, same old. So yes. start the way you mean to finish is the little catchphrase for me that I get most excited about, which is you want to finish empowered and responsive and, and decentralized and agile. Great. Could we start the project that way then mm-hmm. and just act as if? Because that is what's actually going to unlock it. And so there, there are a set of things that I think are foundational or preconditions for having that change capacity, right? Having a certain, mm-hmm. a certain operating rhythm, a certain way of making decisions and, and soliciting consent from the team, a way of making agreements that become the experiments, that become the things to try. So there's a foundational set of stuff that is prerequisite in a way that we have to get good at, build that mastery at, go to the gym on. Until we're like, yeah, we can do that. We can process our own tension. We can unblock our work. We can, we have places to put all the stuff. Mm -hmm. And then it becomes about experimentation and about flipping, which is, you know, we call it looping in the book. But the idea of saying, all right, now that we have this bedrock and we're sort of more in tune, we're communicating better, we're, we're on a rhythm of of change and potential change. Now what's in our way? What's stopping Mm -hmm. us from doing our best work? What are the tensions? What are the opportunities? What are the challenges? And then can we design safe-to-try, safe-to-fail experiments and agree with some measure of consent by those that are involved to try stuff and mm-hmm. see what happens and basically build a learning muscle, build a, a kind of a learning loop into the way we work. And the thing that you've hit on a couple of times in this episode that I just want to like get the hammer, get the nail all the way down into the wood on is We're not asking you to add extra stuff to the way you work. We're not adding another work stream. We're not adding a chief transformation officer and a new set of people. We don't want to mess with the PMO. What we're talking about is the stuff you're already doing, do it differently Mm -hmm. to enable continuous participatory change in every part of your organization so that it becomes a hive, so that it becomes a learning network. Mm -hmm. And and the set of foundational things that you can shift to to unlock that are are teachable, are knowable, are masterable. And the set of things that you're gonna need to do that are custom to you are just gonna make themselves known then. Mm -hmm. And then you're just gonna chase that stuff down and it will become a practice and a habit rather than a destination. When people say it's not, you know, it's the journey, not the destination, that's what this work is all about is basically saying once you know how to sense what's next. And try things to un you know, unlock it, then you just do that forever. Yeah. And then yeah. it feels great.
1: It feels great. And sometimes those loops will be things like, you know, we notice that every week we come and we have a conversation in our action meeting about this thing and we haven't yet made a decision. Yep. What's a decision making process we could try? Yep. Or, or, you know, it's our second quarter of working together, and we have noticed that our budget has nothing to do with reality. What's a new way of budgeting we could try? And, and these things don't have to be, again, in the start the way you mean to go conversation. This does not mean necessarily that you have to blow budgeting up for your ent- entire company. <laughs> if you want to rethink your hiring workflow, try out a couple of hypotheses on your next hire, just that one. Yeah, This is the experimentation discipline um, that we've talked about a lot in other episodes. But basically, think of the experiment as the container. Anything you already have to do can go in there, and you could try it a different way.
0: Yeah, exactly. And I have talked before on this pod, I will probably talk again, about fitness landscapes. But the idea that for anything you're doing... There is a local optimal maximum way of doing it. And then there is a global maximum. There's a a sort of a global best way Mm. that is out there somewhere. And we never know where we are in that mountain range. Mm -hmm. And so the idea that we're going to take the whole company anywhere, we're all going to march down the hill and up that other hill because I think it might be better. The idea that we're happy with the hill we're on—none of those are very conscious of the complexity of that mountain range of possibilities. Yeah. And so, what we need instead, what you just described, is a bunch of different journeyers, a bunch of different troops that are testing out and and exploring the space yeah. of how we hire, of how we make decisions, of how we allocate resources, of how we you know train, of how we give feedback, exploring the territory and using the principles that we know are right, the principles that define how we do this stuff and and define how we engage with the world to to flip things that are no longer working and try to find better alternatives. And most of the time, it'll be a little bit better. Sometimes it'll be a lot better. And occasionally it's worse. Mm
2: -hmm. And you
0: just keep tuning the instrument. And I know for us, I can't think of how many times we have changed one of our meetings as the ready uh, in structure, <laughs> well, but it's dozens of yeah. times over the last look. six years. And and in the middle of that journey, sometimes I think you and I would look at each other and be like, the fact that we're changing this again means that we somehow failed. Mm-hmm. But now what I think we've really dialed into is like, no, no, no. As long as we're doing it for the right reasons, it just means that the world is continuing to turn.
1: Something and,
0: changed. And there's, we need a new thing now. And, and now we have the capacity to have that new thing without a lot of theater or hand wringing. And it's it's quite freeing, I think, to just be in that responsive mode in every corner of the organization without having to have somebody driving that.
1: Yeah, yeah, it really is. And it it gets us going back to the top of this episode. It gets us out of feeling like making a plan is doing a thing. Mm-hmm. And, and this is why in a typical transformation journey, I always wave people off starting with structure
2: mm-hmm.
1: because structure is a plan. Mm-hmm.
2: Structure is not
1: work. An org chart is not work. Reporting lines aren't work. They're not even <laughs> usually how work gets done. It's a plan that makes you feel like you have control. Right. And similarly, when someone wants to start an experiment, that's like create a training plan. Do a mm-hmm. gap analysis. Investigate. I'm like, oh, hmm. what is do we? First of all, do we really not know what the problem is? Right. Second of all, do we really need a plan or is there something that by next week we could try and we could learn? Yeah. And, and whether that's having a different meeting type or whether that's running a different kind of experiment, there are a million you can run. That is the one thing that all of our transformations have in common is that we keep people in the how, not talking about the how and not experimenting with controlling the how, but just right. trying stuff.
0: Because in a complex system, the data is only in the doing. And so it just doesn't matter what you think and what you analyze and what you decide might be true until you have contact with reality. And for those of us that garden and for those of us that have pets and for those of us that have children and relationships, you know that a a plan isn't going to mean shit, right? That it is in the reacting to what is right now. But we seem to resist that in the work context. And I think once, once we let that go, all things are possible.
1: That seems like a great place to draw things to a close, yeah?
0: I think so. And if you liked what you heard today, first of all, I have good news for you. There's a lot of uh, exciting things ahead. A review <laughs> of the podcast would mean a lot because it'll help this show and this message and this story reach a few more people who may need it as well.
1: A special thanks to Taylor Marvin for helping us out and making us sound good. Brave New Work is produced by The Ready, where we help organizations around the world change the way they work. You can get in touch with us by emailing podcast at The Ready. Now, as for you, thanks for listening. Go change something.